We're on the topic of goats in this slice of From a Limestone Ledge. Not goats as in the new favorite acronym for greatest of all time, but goats as in nannies and billies. And then in a quick change of gears, author John Graves goes from goats to bees. So buckle up and join us here as we continue our tales of Texas country life on The Bookshelf. Goats spread long ago, though never really thickly, to many rich regions of the world. The root cause was socioeconomic, not unlike that which sprinkled scrub nannies about the cities of my youth. If you have a hell-down peasantry shut off from ownership of good land and restricted in terms of livestock to creatures that can be kept in a dooryard or pastured alongside roads or on moors and other waste places, you have a ready-made body of goat enthusiasts. The link with such owners did little for goats' social standing, of course, and in most North European countries they were and remain somewhat grubby figures of fun. What makes it all the more remarkable is that upper-class Britishers of the past century or so, with the pleasant, unmercenary thrust toward investigation and discovery and perfecting things that so many of that ilk have possessed, have much to do with the firming up of the main breeds of dairy goats and improving them into the beautifully efficient milk producers they are today. And in this country, people far different from the crusty background codgers of yesteryear have carried on with the refinement process. If the neo-homesteaders who inherit the results continue to increase or merely manage to hang on at their present level, it seems likely that goats will keep on having a place among us too. It's not just the small holdings and small families that make them popular among such people, nor is it each doe's daily gallon or so of rich sweet milk, far different from the strong stuff many of us recall getting with our morning café con leche during sojourns in rural Mexico, where billies run free with the herds and their stink gets into every one and everything. In large measure, it's also the potent charm that nearly all goats have, and the variations in personality that are as sharp as in dogs and cats. They play among themselves, and to see a file of them dancing and bucking sideways in sheer pleasure as they head for pasture in the morning is to know why our words caper and caprice come from the Latin for goat. They play with people, too, and nuzzle and demand and talk, and most people who know them talk back. Call it sentimentality if you like, but I've known some very hard-eyed types with no soft feelings otherwise discernible who habitually conversed with goats. Goats are gentle beings by nature, and for every one that butts people, there's a corresponding human, nearly always young and male, who helped develop that habit. They deserve to survive, and people will survive a bit more richly if they have some goats around. I'll confess that the milk sort are a lot of trouble unless your life's pattern jibes well with their ways. Twice a day, with feed and bucket, you have to be there. Not in Austin or Fort Worth or a few miles away sipping beer and swapping goat folklore with some friends. Your failure to show up when the established, precise, magical hour for milking rolls around will mean that when you do come home, you'll have to face a very disgruntled and loudmouthed set of goats. And if you do it often, their disgust will evince itself in very measly production. Here at the place, for such reasons, we reluctantly sold all our best milk goats last year, 
and at present have only one old pet Nubian, now dry, and a handful of Spanish goats that come to the corral at night for a ration of corn and protection against coyotes and roving dogs. Even these half-wild specimens have stout individualities and names, and my youngest daughter can usually trace the ancestry of any kid in the bunch, from Doorbell down through William and Cream Puff and Pearly May or whatever, which can make for problems at barbecue time. As for the hand-raised lactating pets we got rid of last year, turns out in a way that we didn't. When driving past the ranch where they now live, as pampered as ever, I find myself being forced by my females, and sometimes when alone by inner compulsion, to drop in and see them, and be greeted with recognition and old affection. I never specifically visited a cow in my life, or a horse or a dog except at the vets, but I seem to visit goats. Chapter 10 is entitled, Of Bees and Men. People who have had occasion to get to know honeybees tend to develop strong feelings about them, though such occasions are growing rarer in a mainly urban world. As often as not, the feelings come out as aversion, because a bee can sting, and where there's one, there are generally thousands more, all with the same capability. The other members of my own family, all female, are pretty much of this persuasion, as are the dogs and most other resident mammalian friends, so that when I'm working, or playing, or whatever it is, in the little apiary beside the garden, with bale affixed to head and smokers stuffed with smoldering burlap or cow chips, I can count on being left severely alone. My ladies do like what the bees produce, however, and they're skilled at uncapping combs with a hot knife and spinning them in the old-fashioned crank extractor and straining and bottling the honey during the various pleasant times of harvest that come in spring and summer. A good many other people... I guess it'll be taken as chauvinistic if I say they're mostly male, but for whatever reason this is so, are from the time of their first experience with bees seized by fascination with them as I was in my turn. Time and again I've seen it happen here at the place, especially in April and May on pretty weekends when friends drive out from the cities to visit and my hives, freed from the winter's long torpor and swollen with newborn workers, are likely to be in a swarming mood. A roar starts in the bee-yard, and a swirling tower of frantic, happy golden bugs evolves in the air above it to settle finally with their queen in a fat cluster dangling from some nearby limb, from which way station they'll send out scouts to find a new abode. It is an exhilarating and somehow awesome sight for old hands and neophytes alike, though the beekeeper's own enjoyment of it may be tempered with mild disgust at the fact that his early spring manipulations in the hives, designed to prevent such divisions and thus increase his take of honey, have yet once more been built by the bees' overriding instinct to be fruitful and multiply and spread themselves throughout the world. But, having failed in that, he needs at any rate to catch the swarm and start another hive with it. So he fetches his paraphernalia, a new hive box with frames and wax comb foundation, a saw or pruning shears, a ladder and a catch bag maybe if the swarm is high, and dons a veil and fires up a smoker. 
And at about that point, nearly always, certain of the visiting friends start wanting to know if there are any extra veils for them. There are, so they take part in the whole business with him, helping or hindering, but with dogged interest sticking to the end, even if he bungles, and, as I did once last spring, manages to drop the sawed-off limb with a swarm while descending the ladder and creates large-scale angry uproars. Swarming bees are gentle creatures, full of honey and looking for a home, but no bees stay gentle if mishandled. At any rate, after he's finally gotten them to the new hive, shaken them in, smoked them down among the frames, and squatted there for a while, watching to make certain he's caught the queen and they're going to stay, the friends start asking questions. Unsure of what they've seen, they're convinced it was worth seeing, and they want to know as much about it as you can tell them. Yes, there was another queen left behind in the old colony, which will regain its strength again by fall. No, you can't put the swarm back where it came from, not without more elaborate and skilled machinations than a hacker like me wants to fool with. Yes, it's a nice big bunch of bees, maybe eight or ten pounds, but because of the effort it will need to expend, building comb and rearing new generations of workers, it probably won't make more than just enough honey this summer to get itself through next winter, which is, after all, the bee's main purpose that we seek to pervert into surplus production for our own greedy use. Yes, no, maybe. As the questions continue, I know quite certainly that a couple of new beekeepers have been created if they ever get a place where they can set up a few hives of their own. But with opportunities for such conversion getting scarcer, I suppose that on the whole public opinion in relation to our ancient small friend the honeybee is rather queasy, especially since widespread ignorance causes said small friend to get blamed for many stings inflicted by wasps and other ill-natured hymenoptera. The media, for which alarm and threat are the fodder of daily function, have much to do with this. Bees equal stings equal copy. Hence the uncertain march of the Brazilian-African killer bees up the isthmus and toward our own tender skins is always good for a little horrified conversation when sex and football and politics pall. And no spring is complete without newspaper and TV coverage of two or three more swarms of bees that have clustered on unlikely objects like traffic lights or motorcycle handlebars or baseball backstops. The beekeeper who is called in by the authorities to take the swarm away is inevitably hailed as a St. George rescuing the public from a menace. If before his arrival the public in question has perpetrated some of the common idiocies like swatting the swarm with poles or pelting it with stones or squirting it with water or fly spray, old St. George may deserve a bit of acclaim. For a menace has indeed been created and people have been getting stung as George himself will be too, before he manages to stuff his several thousand enraged bees into a box or a bag. But most often he does the job swiftly and easily and safely and ends up with the esteem of his fellow men, plus maybe 30 or 40 or 50 dollars worth of insects at current package bee prices for very little labor. When people lived mainly in the country and in small towns, more of them had an easy, friendly familiarity with bees and their habits based not only on the presence of hives and back gardens and alongside fields and roads, 
but also on the very old practice shared by men with bears and other sweet-prone beasts of robbing wild colonies of their accumulated hoard of honey, and in primitive times and places of their tender young grubs as well, the latter being a protein-rich snack that somehow lost favor in our time. On the wall of a rock shelter in eastern Spain, Archaeologists found a painting, dating by one estimate from 15,000 B.C., which shows men with ropes and baskets inflicting such larceny on a colony ensconced in a hole in a cliff. The bees are depicted as very large and excited, and the human thieves are undoubtedly getting hell stung out of them, but insofar as the graceful sketch allows one to judge, they seem happy in their work. As well they may have been. Honey is the only concentrated sweet that can be used in its natural form without processing, and it was the only concentrated sweet that Europeans knew at all before the advent, at some point in the so-called Dark Ages, of sugar, which for a number of centuries thereafter was a scarce and costly item. Honey was the old sweet, the real sweet that men have always known. At an uncertain but very early date, people learned enough about bees' ways to start keeping them in hollow logs and in inverted pots and baskets and other such receptacles, and a passion for honey extended itself into a respect and often a reverence for the wee beasties who knew how to make it. By the time of the first dynasty in Egypt, around 3000 BC, beekeeping had taken on a bit of sophistication and involved such practices as floating large numbers of stacked clay tube hives up and down the Nile on rafts to take advantage of the bloom of nectar-producing flowers here and there. And the pharaohs appropriated the sign of the bee as a personal symbol. Assyrian notables' corpses were painted with beeswax and submerged in honey for entombment. The Old Testament holds pleasant references to apicultural products, and a few nature-minded thinkers of note in classic times, from Democritus and Aristotle down through Virgil and Columella and Pliny, failed to pay their respects to Apis mellifera and to add to the store of information and misinformation that was piling up. Medieval monks advanced the art a bit, and in more recent centuries, a series of discoveries by bright men who get themselves hooked on bees, like me and my April friends, led to the more or less scientific management prevalent today. This management has little to do with domestication of bees, which remain essentially wild creatures capable of surviving on their own, even though particularly gentle or productive strains have been identified, even bred, and then promoted and spread around. What it mainly consists of is a set of techniques for guiding their complex wild instincts toward greater usefulness, techniques of hiving and adding or subtracting space, and manipulating colonies for their own well-being and for a bigger yield of honey. It is, of course, still possible to keep them in the old ways that date back forever, and for a non-scientific type like me, there's sometimes a temptation to do so when modern methods gang aigle and fail of their main purpose. An old man who died here in our Cedar Hills three or four years ago maintained dozens of colonies in gutted TV cabinets and surplus ammunition boxes and cracked styrofoam ice chests and whatnot, worried very minimally about them, and got a lot of honey, too. As old-world men spread over the globe, they took their sweet tooth and their old-world bees along with them, often supplanting native species like the tropical American stingless bees, 
whose honey and wax had been demanded as tribute from conquered jungle tribes by the Incas long before Columbus. New England settlers brought honeybees, as did Virginians and others, and the Spanish are said to have introduced them into Mexico and our present southwest. The bees took it from there, dispersing into the wilds as escaped swarms, and moving so far ahead of the white frontier that they became part of the untamed Indians' lore and way of life as well. Here in Texas, for instance, the main southern band of Comanches, by the time history took much note of them, had assumed the name of Honey Eaters. They didn't take on sweetness of nature with it, though. Like moderns who get their honey in supermarkets, they were willing enough to let others take the stings for them. One account exists of naked white captives being dangled on lariats by such Comanches down a cliff. To rob a hive in a crevice, much in the manner of those immortalized Mesolithic Valencians, except that the captives don't appear to have been very happy about the whole thing. But I would not want to dwell overmuch on stings. If you duff around with bees, the fact is you get stung a little, sometimes more than that, but nearly always through your own awkwardness or haste, or because out of pig-headedness or necessity, you go into the hives on a chilly or wet day when the workers are all at home and waiting around for something to resent. In good times, say during the May-June flow of nectar from the sweet clover that we often sow in fall among the winter grain, the bees at their work pay you little mind, and you can play with them and study their growing larvae and the build-up of honey for days on end without a single sting. Nor with time do the stings seem to matter as much. You take those that come with relative calm, not only because you've learned that jerking about and swatting merely lead to more stings, but also because, unless you're one of the rare hypersensitive types, you've developed a sort of immunity to them. It always hurts when a bee prongs you hard, but you stop swelling and itching afterward. One old hawk-nosed fellow I knew long ago used to work his crude box hives quite ungently without avail and with only a burning roll of old quilt for a smoker, hacking out full honeycombs with a butcher knife, and when he got through that great beak of his, that veritable prowl, would be so stuck full of sings it looked furry. But it never turned red or enlarged. His eyes didn't even water. For that matter, a reasonable amount of stinging may be good for you. In reinforcement of what has been observed for centuries among elderly apiarists, some quite respectable medical authorities think that bee venom helps to prevent and alleviate certain forms of arthritis. Others say good honey will help the same affliction, since it was once used as an effective antiseptic for wounds, since germs do very poorly in it. In recent years, an Oklahoma allergist has made a case for pure and unprocessed honey, not subjected to heat, and only coarsely strained, unlike the pretty commercial stuff, as a cure for much hay fever and asthma. Suspended pollen does the trick, apparently, and I believe the recommendation is that the honey be taken from bees, working within 15 miles or so of where the sufferer lives, and that it be swallowed in small quantities each day. Unfortunately for a good many of us, it has no effect on allergies to things like carpet mold and dog hair that do not interest bees, or our Texas juniper, whose pollen permeates the air in winter, while sensible bees are holed up sucking on last summer's honey. Bees open your eyes to all sorts of matters around you. 
in weather and winds and soil moisture that affect the prospects for nectar, to creatures like toads and tanagers and skunks and dragonflies and wax moths that prey on your hives in one fashion or another, though seldom to the point that they have to be fought off, but most of all to plants, to the multitudinous species of wildflowers and blossoming trees and shrubs that bees work during the week or two of their glory, and to those more useful blooms of wild or seeded things, here where I am, mainly sweet clover and vetch and mesquite and sumac, and maybe a few miles off, a completely different array, that last for five or six weeks, and at good moist seasons provide a honey flow for your aggrandizement and the hives, or sometimes for theirs alone, as with broomweed, which makes an unpleasant dark honey smelling faintly of dirty socks, but Flowering as it does, copiously in fall, packs the hives with fuel against winter. As students of plant life, beekeepers tend more toward pragmatism than toward scientific detachment. An occasional misfit gets led astray into aesthetic or purely botanical realms of interest, but not being wholly practical myself, I've sinned a bit in that direction. But your real hard-line dedicated apiarist focuses his considerable powers of discernment on a restricted field of botany, specifically on nectar-yielding flora within a mile of wherever he has a set of hives, which is about as far as he can expect his bees to wander foraging. He distinguishes among plants, too, according to the flavor of the honey they yield, and takes a dim view of things like prickly ash, broomweed, and privet, whose product is unpalatable to most human tongues. Such a man's eyes miss very few flowering things, and he's full of information, if you can get it out of him. But a rare orchard from the jungles of Darien could sprout miraculously some morning on one of his pasture oaks, and unless bees were sipping its fluids, his gaze would very likely pass along elsewhere. All is not well with beekeeping nowadays, here in our limestone hills, which, though pretty and private, were subjected to agricultural ruination so long ago and so thoroughly that they're not worth trying to use intensively anymore, we have so far escaped the main threat, insecticides. But in small towns not far away, where until rather recently little beat-up backyard apiaries were a common sight, only a few stubborn bee-men keep trying sorely beset by the seven and malathion and chlorinated hydrocarbons with which most householders now slather their yards and gardens and trees. And in rich farming regions of the state, especially where cotton is grown and regularly dusted and sprayed, the number of hives has diminished hugely since the old days. The most notable commercial honey production in Texas now, I believe, is in the brush country south and west of San Antonio, where catclaw and mesquite and guajillo and whitebrush and such things bloom in crazy profusion whenever rainfall permits. But even there, trouble looms in the form of bulldozers clearing the land for crops or pasture grass. So maybe battered, relatively useless corners of nowhere like ours are best for keeping bees. Uncommercially, at least. We have no blooms, wild or tame, that would sustain hundreds of hives in a yard or thousands through the region. In present economic terms, keeping bees on a small scale doesn't really make much sense, any more than do other such small-scale rural projects. On a dozen hives, each averaging 100 pounds production of honey each year, which is a good bit more than I usually get, but 
not as much as a more dedicated apiarist can expect. You can gross at present bulk wholesale prices about $600. This can be upped considerably by peddling bottled honey around and swinging whatever retail sales you can, but when you put in your hours and your investment in equipment in the balance, you'll probably find you'd have been better off sacking groceries or digging post holes for hire. On the other hand, Winnebago's and season tickets at the Astrodome don't make much economic sense either, and they require a good bit more outlay in both time and cash from those who cherish them than do we rustics' undomesticated mellifluous bugs. Therefore, the hell with economic sense, at any rate in terms of bees. Our bones well know, if our brains do not, that dollar values have nothing to do with the pleasure of watching the hive's intricate functioning through the seasons, of botanizing pragmatically or otherwise, of storing up great jugs and carboys of precious golden stuff and using it during the year and giving it away at Christmas, of making mead, of catching swarms, and the rest. <laughs> Not to mention all those free stings one gets for one's arthritis. I've been reading from the John Graves book from a limestone ledge here on the bookshelf in which he gave us a treatise about the history and mystery of bees, fascinating little bugs which give up lots of sweet rewards in exchange for a few stings. Be with us again for the next episode in which Graves delivers a heartfelt remembrance of a dog named Blue. The University of Texas Press published from a limestone ledge. Vern Wyndham is executive producer of the bookshelf. I'm Tom Bacon.